Uh, Our great God, we thank you that you love us so very much. We uh, ask you to speak to us now. Use my words. May they be acceptable to you. And uh, may your words to us uh, help us to believe in Jesus and find life and joy in him. Amen. So um, this is a very well-known story, isn't it? Uh, The wedding at Cana. If you've been to many weddings, you may have heard this preached and spoken on. If you've been around church for a while, it's like old hat. Um, If you're brand new to the whole religious thing... um, and in one sense, you have, a, you have a, uh, a benefit over some of us who've been at it for a while, because you might read the story and go, what the, what's going on here? And actually, if you stop and think about it, even as someone who is familiar with Christianity and with the Gospels, you have to ask yourself, why on earth would Jesus launch his public ministry, do his first sign? Why would it be this? Like it's a weird, it's like kind of a magic trick. And, and in the rest of the Gospels, we don't see many other tricks like this. It's a, it's a little weird, isn't it? Just water and a wine. He's, it's a bit of a, you know, to and a bit of argy-bargy with his mum. She twists his arm and he eventually does this amazing thing. And then they all go off and chill out. But somehow, it reveals his glory. And somehow, if you look at this text... It, uh, it helps his disciples come to believe. And this is what it says, right? Look at this. Uh, this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And, and if you remember from last week, that's the whole point of the, uh, of the whole of John's gospel is to help people believe in Jesus. But how on earth does this help that? If, if, you, if you employed a marketing or PR firm and you said, I'm about to launch my world-changing, save the universe, bring everybody life, and end injustice and evil and suffering, and I've got a big, I need a big product launch, I need a campaign launch, would they do this? Last minute, ad hoc, doing your mum a favor in a wedding with some people you don't really know that well? Why? So, that's a good question. Let's try and answer it. The answer lies in, uh, in, a, in understanding a few things about what's going on here. The first thing is to, un- is to think about the wine. So if you want to understand this, this text and why it's such good news and why it's going to help people believe in Jesus and follow him, you've got to understand the role of the wine. And the first point to make is, uh, I'm not sure if any of you are very good at... Uh, uh, imperial to metric conversions, how much wine does Jesus make? So he takes six stone jars and 20 to 30 gallons. So that's a lot, right? Do you know how much that is in liters? 500 to 700 liters, uh, according to the scholars. Now that is a lot of wine. That is a lot of wine. Right? Do I hear an amen to that? That is a lot. Like even, this is a small village. And, and it's a, they've been partying like weddings could go for a week. They've been going for a long time. I mean, they're done with the wine. And then he comes along. He doesn't just make enough to see them through to the end. He makes an enormous abundance of wine. And you go, well, that's great. 
here's the next thing you need to know. So he makes lots of it. So he makes lots. The next thing you need to know is that wine in Jesus' day was deeply connected to joy. So in fact, there's a rabbinical saying of, at the day that says, where there is no wine, there is no joy. So he makes an enormous amount of wine, which means an enormous amount of joy. Right? Isn't that good? Now you start to think, hmm, I, here's a little bit of cultural analysis. Very important, this story for us, because... Uh, the last 200 years, philosophically, you can think about as a sustained attempt on the part of our culture to rid themselves, rid our culture, rid ourselves of the joy-limiting constraints of religion. Okay, The view in our culture for 200 years has been God basically wants to make us miserable. Right? Religion is this oppressive, controlling thing that is designed to stop you and I having a good time. However you want to think of that, you know, in terms of money, in terms of sex, in terms of drugs and alcohol and parties, God is anti-joy. In fact, there's this great, I think my favorite saying from the French Revolution was uh, that we won't have true liberty until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last bishop. Isn't that great? I mean, that's our culture, isn't it? You take the last oppressive political authority and you kill him with the entrails of religious authority. And then, friends, we'll be free. And being free, we'll be able to do whatever we want and then we'll really be happy. Isn't that, that's, and of course, religion's going to make you miserable. Against that, the very first thing Jesus does is produce an extraordinarily abundant, enormous amount of joy. And I think if, if we're to follow Jesus and if we're to hold on to our faith, or if we're going to come to believe in him, I think this is a really important bit of kind of recalibrating our worldview and our minds that we've got to say to ourselves all the time, no, following Jesus, being religious, is not going to kill my joy in life. In fact, just the opposite. And to, to highlight this point, what sort of wine did Jesus make? The best of all kinds of wine. I mean, like the very, very best. So I love, it's very human. Um, I always wonder, apologies to any of you who grew up in a brethren or Baptist or strict teetotaling uh, you know, community. I do find it odd because, uh, how, I, I don't know, I've never heard this taught in this context because it's really clear that the sort of the maitre d', the, the guy who's running the show, um, tastes this wine and he goes, man, this is weird. Normally... Everyone brings out the really good wine first and then serves the cheap plonk when everyone's totally hammered and they can't tell the difference. Now, which assumes there's alcohol content in the wine. I don't know how, like maybe, like, so there had to be alcohol there. But the point of the story is Jesus brings out the best of all possible wines. The joy Jesus brings is greater than any joy that the world has to offer. That's extraordinary. That's, a, that's an amazing claim. And here's why it's so amazing. Because listen, um, 
we all are hungry for joy, aren't we? We live for joy. We, and, and living for joy, we, what we do in this world is we, we, we set out to climb all kinds of mountains to achieve that joy, don't we? Like, if I just, you know, when you're at school, if I just get this ATAR or this result, then, then my life will be full of joy and it'll be complete. And, and then you get there and, and you get to the top of this hill and when you get to the top of the hill, what do you see on the other side of the hill? Just another even bigger hill. Now I've got to get into uni and you get into uni and you, if I just get into uni and then you get to uni, what do you see on the other side of that hill? Just an even bigger hill. And the problem is on the top of every hill that you ever climb to, it's still just you. Getting to the top of the hill doesn't change you. you dis- what we discover is every joy ultimately disappoints. Now, often in our culture, we think um, what we'll really do is we'll find joy in, a, in relationship, in marriage, in being loved. But, uh, I mean, if you're currently unpartnered and you've never had that joy, let me tell you this. What do you discover? You, you live to be married, to be partnered, to be loved, and then finally you find the one and... And does it change everything? Does it transform your soul? How you get to the top of the hill that could be marriage or partnership or love and you discover what? It's still just you. And now you're sharing the jolly hilltop with someone else. It's just as annoying and disappointing as you are. And now you've just got to climb a bunch of other hills. Joy leaks through our fingers as we grab onto it. But you know, we're made for joy. We're actually made. This is why it drives us. We're made for a joy that doesn't disappoint. I'll give you another example about the level of disappointment. If you read the biographies of many elite athletes, what do you discover? You discover that they're deeply depressed a lot of their competitive career. Why? Because once you've got your gold medal, you wake up the next morning, what do you do? You get back in the pool and you start swimming over this black line and you do that for the next four years. Why? So you can get another gold medal and you get your goal and, and it's just empty, right? But we never stop doing it and humans have never stopped doing it because deep inside of us, we're wi- we are hardwired for joy. We desperately need this now. C.S. Lewis made this very, very interesting point and it's quite a compelling for me as a... It's one of the most compelling arguments for, uh, for religion and for Christianity to be true. It's called the argument from unmet desire. And C.S. Lewis says, uh, in this world, everywhere we look, wherever there is a universally present desire in a person or a being, there exists the potential for that desire to be met. Right? So it would be very odd if... Every human being had a, had a thirst for water and nowhere in this world was there a possibility for, that, for water to exist and for that thirst to be quenched. In fact, everywhere in the world, uh, if there's a universally present thirst, it's there in all of us, a desire in all of us, there exists the possibility for it to be met. So what about our desire for an unending, soul-transforming joy? Well, 
experience says nothing in this world will actually meet that joy or it will actually provide us with that joy. It really won't. You read all the literature in the world. None of, nothing in this material world will, reach, will meet that joy. So C.S. Lewis says, maybe that's because this desire can only be met by God. We have this universally present, unmet desire for transcendent, soul-satisfying joy that nothing in this world meets. Maybe God can do it. That's the point of John 2. Jesus provides exactly that joy. He starts his ministry in John's gospel, his public sign, by creating an overabundance of exquisite wine that represents joy. And, it's, and, and let, me show you, let me show you even more profoundly what's going on here, more than just the wine, because the wine, while it represents joy, represents a particular kind of joy. Uh, the wine actually represents uh, messianic joy. Or this could be misunderstood in our context. But it's actually the joy of the new age. The really new age. What I mean by that is God, the joy that God has in store for us is the joy that comes when he makes the world new. When he rids the world of everything that would rob us of joy, where he takes away all suffering and hardship and injustice and the fleeting nature of time that robs us of joy, that's the joy that is envisioned here. Uh, the joy, wine, and why do I say that? Well, wine is associated with this new age, this promised world to come that is the source of all joy. I love this, Jeremiah 31. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking hundreds of years before Jesus arrives, giving this promise to God's people, he says this, for the Lord uh, will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Uh, the young men, the young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty. That's what God says he's going to do. And wine's right at the center of it. Wine is right at the center of it. So Jesus is saying, this age of abundance of the presence of God to give us everything we long for. This is coming. Jesus is here. Uh, Amos, favorite verse of our teetotaling brothers. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Again, looking forward to that new age. When the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. How is this new age of joy described? New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. That's, a, that's the picture of, of God changing and healing and restoring the world. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. Bringing new wine in abundance. Let the party begin. Isn't that great? 
Now, you would have thought, are you all too hot to think it's great? Okay, think of it as chilled white wine. That might help on a day like today. Uh, it's, a, it's a great start. You would have thought, if Jesus knew that this was what he was about to do, uh, when his mum came to him and asked him to do it, he would have been super excited, wouldn't you? He would have gone, it's like he would have been waiting. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach these people an amazing lesson. But look, verse 4 has caused quite a, there's been a lot of ink spilt on verse 4. Um, they run out of wine, and this is terribly embarrassing. This is like a major faux pas. In fact, this could be grounds for legal action. The bride's family could take legal action against the groom and his family for the, the embarrassment and the shame of running out of wine. It's a, it's a terrible thing, um, yeah, terrible, terrible thing. So, uh, so there, and, and obviously, Mary, Jesus' mum, knows this family uh, probably better than Jesus and his disciples. We're not sure why they were invited. And so Jesus' mother comes to him, and like every Jewish mother, she knows her son can do anything and fix anything and solve any problem. And so, so Mary comes to Jesus and says, um, they've got no more wine. And you would have thought Jesus would have gone, yes, now's my chance to teach this amazing miracle. I can perform this amazing wonder. I'm going to start. This is the kickoff of my campaign. Yes. But that's not what he does, does he? What does he do? It's like he's, he's pensive and he's withdrawn and he's thinking and he really doesn't want to do it. He says, woman, he doesn't even call her mum. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Like, not my circus, not my monkeys. Why? Because my hour has not yet come. Why, why so reluctant? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. It's all to do uh, with the hour. You see, Jesus knows that to bring about the eternal joy for people in this world, people like you and me, to create the conditions for this new age, this eternal wedding feast. He knows that's his job. He's going to do it. But he knows it's not going to be easy. In fact, he knows it's going to be extraordinarily costly for him. Because in John's gospel, the hour is used as a, as a word to summarize his glorification through his death. So what, what Jesus is doing is all this party's going on about him and he's thinking about the next party that's coming for him. The party, the, his wedding feast. Revelation 19 says, talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb the great party that Jesus is preparing for all those who believe in him. I think Jesus is thinking about that. And what he's realizing, he's thinking, he's going, I know that to get from where I am now, the start of my public ministry, to, to this place where I can provide a wedding feast that goes on forever and for always for everyone, he says, I know that that path involves me suffering and dying. That's the hour. 
That's the hour that, that he has to go through. And here he is, and it's just starting. And, and in his humanity, he's looking down the path, and he goes, I can see the glory and the joy that is coming, but I know my path through there is going to cost me everything. I'm going to have to drink not the cup of wine, but the cup of suffering on behalf of the world. I'm going to have to lay my life down to provide forgiveness and purification for broken people. And on the other side of it, I'm going to rise. And then the the doors, the gates to this wedding feast are going to be thrown open. But my hour isn't yet here. So, mum, don't ask me to walk that path just yet. Don't ask me to do that just yet. But then, of course, he does. Why? Because he's a, he's a God of compassion who goes, I'm going to cover over the shame and the embarrassment. And it's, my hour's not yet here, but you know what? This young groom needs love and forgiveness and mercy to cover over the enormous shame and faux pas of his poor planning. He should have got his bride to plan, I'm sure it would have worked out much better, but then we wouldn't have this story. So Jesus says, my hour's not yet there, but I'll do it anyway, because his very nature is to cover over shame and cover over inadequacy. My hour's not yet here, because this wedding feast that he is going to provide, this ultimate wine is going to come at the cost of his own blood shed. You see, uh, I don't know if you'd pick this up. Um, the jars that contained the water were a particular kind of jar, weren't they? They were jars for ceremonial washing. And so what Jesus is saying, he chooses these. He could have, he could have chosen a bunch of other jars. These were out the back, not wine containers. Jesus could just have refilled the empty wine containers that had already been in use, right? He could have done that for sure. Instead, he chooses these. Why? Here's why. Listen. Um, The Jews washed themselves a lot. They were told to. All the time they were washing themselves. Why? Because they were being taught by God to realize that they needed cleansing. Why? Because they were a mess. And you go, glad I'm not a Jew. My incipient anti-Semitism is justified. I'm not like them at all. Really? Really? Man, we're all a mess. I'll tell you something. Uh, This week, uh, I was out hanging out with Oliver, our son. And um, we're walking around, and I was thinking, I was in a bit of an introspective mood. And I just realized how quickly life has gone by. And I thought, I'm not the kind of dad I really hoped I'd be. When he was born, I had all these hopes and plans and things we could do and achieve and... No, I'm not a terrible dad, and we've done some of them, but I'm kind of disappointed in me. Been married to Margot for, gosh, 22 years, 23 years? Okay, yeah, 23 years. Um, And I'm, in my quiet moments, I'm not the kind of husband that I hoped I'd be when we stood there out in Layla Park and exchanged our vows, and I'm a disappointment in me. We all are, aren't we? We know in our heart of hearts, we carry around in us shame and guilt and mess. We all need cleansing. We all need purification. 
It's not just the Jews. They were given this symbol of the water to teach them their need. So here's what Jesus does. He says, you know what? I'm not just going to give you better wine. I'm actually going to give you better wine that you can drink forever because I'm going to purify you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to make you fit to sit at the feast of the king. I'm going to make you fit to sit at my wedding banquet. I'm going to take away every bit of disappointment and shame and guilt and mess in your life. So what the purification jars full of ceremonial water for ceremonial washing were to teach Israel, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill. And, and actually, what's the other thing in John's gospel that Jesus connects wine with? Wineskins, yeah. His blood. Think about it. We celebrate the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist and, 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 and the wine is actually a symbol, a representation of his blood. And so what Jesus is saying is this wine that's going to bring you joy, that's going to fill your souls forever. This wine is also my blood, which is going to purify you and cleanse you so that you can be a person who can enjoy my wedding feast forever. Isn't that amazing? He'll purify us. He'll cleanse us. That's good news, right? Oh my goodness. If you don't think that's good news, it's because you haven't had an introspective moment where you've been brutally honest with yourself. (sighs) What wonderful news that we can be purified we can be cleansed and we can be invited to sit with Jesus and experience an eternity of joy. Here's one of the ways Jesus describes this, or actually Isaiah describes it before. Isaiah 25, on this mountain, this is describing where God wants to take us, the feast that we are gonna be purified to participate in, and then be, everything is going to be laid on for us. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, like a great luxury, super abundance, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Oh, wow. Don't you want that? More than anything? You're hungry for that. For that feast. For that day. For that joy. Well, that's why his disciples believed in him, because they saw what he was doing and they understood him saying to them and saying to you and me, I'm the one who can get you there. I'm the one who will do this for you. Do you believe that Jesus can do that for you? That he can give you a greater joy than anything you could possibly find in this world. 
Do you believe that he can purify you and give you a fresh start and make you clean? Do you believe he can secure for you a place in this new age, in this world to come, where death will be destroyed and God himself will wipe away your tears? Are you leaning into this Jesus today? Let's pray. Uh, Our great God, um, forgive us for the ways we so often don't believe that you're here to give us joy and we pursue joy in all sorts of other things, good as they are, but we, we don't look to you for joy. We don't believe that you're able to do this. Oh Lord, forgive us. And forgive us when we don't realize how desperately we need purification. We need your blood, your wine to wash over us. Forgive us when we live in a perpetual state of minimization and denial. Covering over our shame and guilt with busyness and self-medication and workaholism and all sorts of other things. And and Lord, this morning I, I beg you for each of us in this room, wherever we are, may we believe and know and trust with every fiber of our being that in Jesus we can have joy for all eternity and we can have a fresh start, purity, purification, wholeness, life, now and forever. Amen.